because you got a felony, don't discriminate against me. I'm still not no bad dude. I just did some bad things, but I'm no bad dude. And it's like, why do you have to constantly keep trying to convince somebody to say, okay, can I just become a productive member of society? Can you give me another chance? I don't know, no man. But I mean, if once they learn your past, you know, oh, it's dangerous, you know. Even the prison. The groups that I've come up with say that it essentially takes two days to heal up from every single day that you are in prison. And so if we think of it like that, um, then somebody who's been in a year, it's going to take them at least two years to transition back into life on the outside. 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 Most of us don't think about what it's like to come back from prison. I'm Molly Mulroy, and this is Outside. So we've come to the end here. I've thrown a lot of information at you, and not happy information either. Thanks for sticking around. For this final episode, we're going to talk about how to digest all of these stories and facts and feelings, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the projects and organizations that Terrence, Eastwood, Nelson, and Sarita are working on. First, I want to share with you something that Professor Quigley from Loyola Law School told me. I call it the 100-year test, which is to look back 100 years and say what things were totally legal then that we know now are totally unjust and wrong, and who was allowed to vote, who was allowed to be, go to college or become a lawyer, who was, you know, how do we treat children and all that stuff. That was all totally legal, and there was judges and churches and law professors and everybody else who supported that and said, well, that's, you know, that's the system we have. But to flip that thing forward, uh, what if 100 years from now people are going to look back at us today and say, my God, how did the people in 2017 not see that this system, which is totally legal, is so totally bad and totally unjust and people are just pretending like this is okay? I really like this assessment. I think it's a good way to conceptualize the morality of the systems we're working with today or 30 years ago or next month. For example... Should people be denied the right to vote after they've already served their time? Should people who committed sex offenses be forced to live on the street? Should we deny people higher educational opportunities because they checked that they had been to prison on a form? When you get into the details, as we have, it becomes harder and harder to justify the punishments people endure after they have already served their mandated time in prison, both systemic punishments like probation and societal ones. It paints a pretty dark picture of an already grim subject. But there is certainly cause for hope. There are all kinds of organizations and advocates working on fixing these issues. Everything from the racial disparities I mentioned to the sex offender registry issues. Not surprisingly, lots of these organizations have been spearheaded by formerly incarcerated people. Who better to understand what needs changing within the system than the people who have already lived through it?
right? First, there's Operation Restoration, Sarita's organization. She explained much of the ins and outs of Operation Restoration in Episode 1, where she talked about helping women through all different aspects of reentry. But we didn't really get to discuss Real Women, Real Voices, which is a traveling symposium of formerly incarcerated women who speak about their experiences, particularly pertaining to reentry, all around the country. I met a lot of great women, you know, while I was incarcerated. A lot of them helped take care of me, mold me, because they were mothers, and I was a, they looked at me like a child, you know. So um, it's just always about helping them navigate and find their way. And I also feel that women who hear it from other women who have been through the same thing that they've been through, it's easier to let down your guard and trust you. But it's like a lot of times, you know, we call each other sisters. A lot of times when I'm around my sisters, it's like you're finally in a room where somebody understands you. Sarita is one of their main panelists. In fact, they have a symposium happening the night of April 5th at Tulane Law School. But by the time most of you are hearing this, it will have already passed. You can probably find some of their panels live-streamed by the various law schools they visited. For example, when they visited Yale Law School, the panel was able to make a video call into a woman's prison in Indiana, where they spoke to some incarcerated women who have created a partnership with their local branch of Habitat for Humanity to help eradicate homelessness and recidivism after women are released from prison. While they're still incarcerated, the women take different types of building classes to learn how to help with the houses. During the second phase of the classes, they actually go to help rebuild and refurbish abandoned homes in the nearby communities. And when they're released, they can live in one. Another program that helps with the issue of post-release housing right here in New Orleans is the FIRST 72 Plus. Founded by six formerly incarcerated men, their goal was to help people transitioning home from prison by providing transitional housing. Although Eastwood never had to stay with FIRST 72 Plus, he has worked with them in the past, and knows one of the founders, Ben Smith. Yeah, that's what uh, that's what that's what guys need when they when they're being released. You know, they need someone to well, like the service that Ben has. I gotta commend Ben on that. He he give him everything, money out his own pocket, and bring him to get the ID, bring him to get different things. Uh, different thing that they need to survive. Oh, they come see us, rather. We don't go get them. They come. They come down here. You know, they'll come see us, and we'll uh, show them that they live here, sleep here. You know, uh, do you need help to get a job? Your ID, you know, this, that, not all you need. You know, so uh, Ben make sure that they get everything that they need. You know, to you know, work shoes and boots and different things. So, uh, some guy can go to work if he want to go to work, you know? Yeah, well, he takes them to bring, he brings them to mental health and all that, you know, uh, to a uh, welfare department, wherever they need to go, you know? He bring them there, he see to that. He didn't help me a great deal. Don't be for him, I'll probably be back on the streets myself. And Eastwood isn't the only one to sing the praises of First 72 Plus. Just earlier this year, singer-songwriter John Legend visited the First 72 Plus as part of his campaign to end mass incarceration. Legend also spent part of that day with Norris Henderson, the founder of Voices of the Ex-Offender. Remember that group? I mentioned them way back in episode one. Vote, 
which is an appropriate abbreviation, recently litigated the voting lawsuit that Professor Quigley and Professor Armstrong were working on, where 70,000 different people throughout the state of Louisiana were asking to have their voting rights restored, despite their probation or parole status. On March 13th, a judge in Baton Rouge ruled against vote and their 70,000 separate claimants. According to the vote press release, though, the judge said, Twice a year, I have to make a ruling I don't like. I don't like this ruling. Which could potentially be a sign of change in the future. Nelson was actually incarcerated with Vote's founder, Henderson, so a few days after the hearing, I talked to him about it over the phone. This lawsuit could have been a big change for him. Yeah. Uh, no, can't vote. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's what we're fighting for, and, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, we may be able to get some um, relief through the courts, or maybe even legislation, but, you know, until then... Um, as long as I'm on parole, I can't vote. Right, right. Have to pay taxes, though. But Nelson isn't giving up. He works for an organization called Citizens for Second Chances, which is under the larger umbrella organizations of Vote and the Louisiana Center for Children's Rights. I'll let him explain it. Yes, um, Citizens for Second Chances uh, is it's a grassroots organization. It was founded by, actually founded by my mother and uh, the mother of another uh, incarcerated youth to bring uh, the families together um, to fight for um, juvenile justice in Louisiana, particularly uh, the sentencing schemes as far as citizen juveniles life without parole. Um, for the most part, uh, we, we show up at, at the legislature whenever it's time to get things passed and uh, we write our senators, we write our um, uh, representatives, uh, we speak at hearings. Uh, uh, I've, I've drafted several pieces of legislation trying to get passed. Um, uh, right now we're at a, uh, a point where, you know, this next legislative session is going to be real big as far as uh, what's going to happen. Um, there have been a lot of cases that have come out, you know, and, um, and the legislature hasn't actually acted um, recently with regards to some of the cases that have come out. And so the, uh, the courts have said some things, um, but hopefully this next legislative session um, we can get something positive done for, for the guys that are incarcerated right now. Some of the arguments that groups like Citizens for Second Chances use when trying to sway governmental bodies is surprisingly science-based. Dr. Elizabeth Kaufman, a psychologist and professor at Temple University, and many in her field argue that adolescent brains don't develop until much later than we've initially thought. They argue that despite the fast development of intellectual ability, adolescents' brains don't reach full maturity until they're at least 26. Kaufman's studies suggest that the grand majority of juveniles grow out of offending, that even if they commit a serious offense at a young age, only 9% of adolescents hadn't stopped committing crimes by the time they reached their 20s. If that's the case, she argues, even dangerous kids will grow up and out of crime. First of all, you know, kids are kids. Um, the, the science is, is there as far as brain development, um, and we don't we don't need we don't need to look at science to understand. We, we know that you know socially and culturally that you know kids do things that you know adults would not do, uh, and that they change. And so um, I'm fighting to give 
Since Nelson himself committed his offense as a juvenile and was charged as an adult, this subject seems particularly relevant to his story. In fact, all of the people I've interviewed, Terence, Eastwood, Nelson, and Sarita, they were all incarcerated at some point before the age of 20, well before the age of brain maturity that Dr. Kaufman described. This last organization I'm going to talk about tries to keep kids out of the prison cycle, sometimes before they even begin. I actually mentioned this organization in the first episode, too, when Terrence and I were talking about food. As I explained in episode one, Cafe Reconcile is a small nonprofit in Central City that hires youth to work at the restaurant to learn different job skills and life skills. They gain experience in food service and hospitality, while also gaining access to counseling and future employment opportunities. Terence has been going to Cafe Reconcile since 2014, when his sister completed the program and encouraged him to try it out too. Yeah, I actually got in Cafe Reconcile because I came for the interview. My sister had referred me to Cafe Reconcile. And then I came for the interview here, and I was start in class four before my class. But a day later, I got incarcerated again. And so my mom and my sister came to them asking me to, asking them to write letters for me to let them know I'm in a program and I'm not trying to mess up nothing. Mm -hmm. Made it through with Kathy Runner, so I got me off it. At the very beginning of the first episode, I told you about Louisiana's incarceration rates. The worst in the country. The worst in the world. It's a lot to digest. But it's heartening to see all these types of organizations fighting for people's rights and fighting for a better system. You've now heard the stories of four individuals who have dealt with that system. You've heard what it was like for them to come home to loving families and distant families, to easy employment and minimum wage employment, to a supportive society and a stigma-filled society. Some people might say that Terrence, Eastwood, Nelson, and Sarita are lucky, that they were given a second or third or fourth chance. There are certainly people that would make that argument, that Terrence has paid his debt to society, has been forgiven, and should now go out into the world and make a life for himself, without the right to vote, without the ability to join the military, and with a criminal record that could keep him from getting his own apartment. But that argument, that the formerly incarcerated have been blessed by the criminal justice system and sent on their way as saved men and women, that argument hinges on the us-versus-them mentality once again. It suggests that they, the criminals, the thieves, the drug dealers, have so wronged us, society, that they require our institutionalized forgiveness. But perhaps it would be more accurate to say that we, as a society, are the ones who require forgiveness. Our system of punishment in this country exceeds so far beyond the walls of the prison that it permeates applications and education and seeps into our consciousness. And it is that mentality that is so insidious, so detrimental. As a young person, as an adult, inside prison or coming home, we all deserve a system and a society that will treat us with humanity, with dignity, and with the same civil rights as someone who has always been on the outside.
Outside is brought to you by Nisha Call Productions. My editorial advisor is Dr. Laura Murphy, and the theme song was composed by Daniel Bourgeois and Michael Concanon. Many thanks to the Loyola Honors and English Departments, as well as my glorious roommates, boyfriend, and family. Special thanks, of course, to the organizations through which I worked, and, most especially, the people who were willing to sit down and talk with me for the last few months. This project would not have been possible without you.